Howdy folks, this is John Boswell, licensed psychotherapist and certified personality disorder treatment provider here along with my colleague, Dr. Lynn Varela, a licensed mental health counselor who specializes in treating people with borderline personality disorder and complex PTSD. Awesome sauce. So today we will talk to you about narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder and how it ties into what we call attachment styles. So attachment started with John Balby. He is the father of attachment theory, and he has come up with four different styles of attachment. There probably are other people who have come up with other styles. There's probably more than just four out there at this point because his reach was, I want to say, in the 60s and 70s. So if you know somebody or a therapist who's discussed this and has told you there's more than four, that is fantastic. But we're just going to go with the four for today. So there's secure attachment, which kind of makes sense. It's, you know, they're easily accepting of trusting love you know they can't get close to others with ease so they don't go oh you love me ah go away no they they're they're okay with you loving them and them loving you then there's an attachment that is anxious so it's insecure they have fear of abandonment they need constant reassurance and validation so this push-pull come here come here come here come here i want you close to me well wait 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 i don't know go away go away go away oh my god no no, no. but wait you're gonna leave me and then there's avoidant attachment which is fear of intimacy difficult getting close to people and the distrust of others and then there's the fearful avoidant attachment which is the combination of anxious and avoidant attachment styles And so those are the four main ones that were proposed early on in psychotherapy. Would you want to add anything to that? No, that was actually great. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, and and in my experience, when I have people do a book that's called The Assertivist Guide for Women, part of what they go over is the different attachment styles. I mean, I have multiple books that do talk about attachment because it's a big thing for people that I work with that have BPD. And it's surprising, but people will have more than one attachment style at times. Absolutely. I wanted to point out too is that just because you may have one or more than one of these attachment styles does not mean that you're going to be borderline or narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's actually, the majority of us that have one of these unhealthy attachment styles don't develop a personality disorder at all. However, in the paradox, most of the people we see with personality disorders tend to have one of these unhealthy attachment styles. Which leads to the coping mechanism, because with, with borderline personality disorder and the DSM, one of the criteria is that is needed to meet you know the diagnosis is that you have to have abandonment fears which usually goes with the avoidant the fearful you know and the anxious attachment styles it's the oh god you're gonna leave me i need to get you back in how do i do this oh now that you're close to me go away go away go away so it's very much at the core for pretty much every person i've treated with borderline personality disorder but like john says you know Obviously, we don't live in absolutes, so just because you have attachment issues doesn't mean 100% you're going to have a personality disorder. It could be that you have features. It could just be that you have PTSD. It could just be that this is something that you need to work on on its own, and you just need to work on the attachment stuff, and you'll move on. And I want to point out, too, I've had a lot of people give me some flack online about this, but the majority of us don't have personality disorders are actually mm-hmm. pretty rare within the population. That's not to mm-hmm. say that there's not a lot of people because it's a big population in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 2% can be millions of people. Right, but majority of us will develop some kind of other 
mental health issue, if anything, mm-hmm. if one at all, but not necessarily a personality disorder. I mean, and then there's also the theory that I've heard that everybody has features of personality disorder. It doesn't mean that you're diagnosable as having a personality disorder. Like if you live in a culture that has very narcissistic tendencies, you can have narcissistic behaviors, but not be a narcissist. Absolutely. I find a lot of people get that confused. So when we talk about features, we're talking about like Dr. Lynn said, tendencies or traits, features, things like that. Behaviors, right. But to actually meet the true blue in essence Mm -hmm. narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder diagnosis there's certain criteria that you have to meet Mm -hmm. it's not easily given out oh no no (laughs) and that's why when people come to me and go my partner's a narcissist oh let's let's not throw that word out because it's like a a word everybody loves throwing out it's aka this person's an asshole therefore they're a narcissist (laughs) i tell people well no maybe they're just an asshole maybe they're not a narcissist i said and then i always specify well if this person is a true narcissist that can be diagnosed this is what the behavior would look like now just because they have parts of this behavior or they have this one behavior does not mean you have the, you know, you don't qualify for that. That's why you have to, I think you have to meet five out of the nine qualifications. You got it, five out of nine. So just because you have one, okay, you're a jerk, but it doesn't make you a narcissist. And we wanna make sure that that is not better accounted for by another diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if I tend to get hoity and narcissistic when I'm drunk, but only when I'm drunk, (laughs) it may not be that. Or if I have dementia or head injury, I may Mm -hmm. act differently than I used to act as well. So there's a couple factors we look in and we always encourage people not to do a layman's diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Always go ahead and seek help, seek help from a professional. And what's most important really is just how are you being treated? Are you okay with the way you're being treated? Whether narcissistic or not or borderline or not, Mm -hmm. that's what it comes down to. Oh, you definitely have to rule out the medical. Thanks for bringing that up because there are medical conditions that can mimic a a mental health disorder, like a TBI, a traumatic brain injury. I have seen people who who had no mental health issues, no problem, had great relationship with their wife, and then they got into a motorcycle accident that hit a certain part of their head in the front, and this person now was, there was domestic violence, there was a lot of other issues that had never been present, but really it's not a mental health issue. I mean, I was treating him because I was, you know, it presented as mental health, but it was really rooted in that there was brain damage. Yeah, even something as common as bipolar disorder could look like narcissistic personality mm-hmm. disorder while the person's in mania, when they're in the up phase. Mm-hmm. Even addiction can look like narcissism. Absolutely. Very much so. Yes. So then, if we're going to talk about attachment styles, as I see it, is that there were certain needs that we had that were not met. And so there's various people throughout the history of psychology that have spoken about needs and not being met and what can happen, you know, starting with Freud and his was always very sexual because everything was Freud was always sexual. (laughs) And then you have in 1943, you have Maslow, which is kind of the gold standard, I want to say. I don't know if somebody has come up after him, but it was pretty much what we were taught in our master's program as a gold standard with his hierarchy of needs. Yes, yes, and seems to be the one that makes the most sense to me, frankly. Yes, it makes so much sense. And so basically, Maslow came up with this hierarchy of needs that you know you start with the lowest, which is your physiological needs, so your food, water, shelter that we all know, and then you have safety needs. You know, I need to know that I'm safe from harm, that that things are predictable, that they are stable. That's why if you have a therapist that's seeing your children, they're always going to say that routine, stability, predictability 
responsibility is so key because if we know what's coming, if we feel safe, if we know that, you know, back in caveman time, we were in that cave and I don't know, the lion or whatever couldn't get to us, we can then thrive. We can do the arts. We can, I don't know, think about what is our purpose. You know, the higher thought processes can happen if we feel safe. Then after that is our love needs. So you need for love, affection, intimacy, friendship. Then the level after that is esteem needs, which is self-respect, achieve, prestige. And then the last stage that I personally think is always ongoing is self-actualization. So self-fulfillment, desire for truth and wisdom. The, and this is always ongoing because what fulfills you in your 20s is not going to be what fulfills you in your 40s. Right. Because God knows midlife crisis are a thing. Absolutely. And so, you know, the serious questions of what's my purpose and what do I do in the second half of my life really start hitting. And so what will fulfill you is completely vastly different. Now, the attachment issues begin how I see it in safety needs. You know, the need to attach to you to feel the stability and the predictability of our relationship that you're here, whether I'm mad, whether I'm crying, whether it's a bad day, whether it's a good day, you're there. Yes, nobody's perfect and we make mistakes, but overall, it's okay to feel my emotions. It's okay to have a bad day. It's, it's okay that you're not physically here because you're in the kitchen and I'm in the living room, but I know that if I cry for you, that that need for love and attention will be met. And it's also about mirroring and validating that the parent's gonna say, Oh, you know, I love how you look with that tutu always on, that you look so cute and with your uniqueness and that you have a sense of fashion that maybe nobody else has just like you, but it's amazing and it's great and it's fantastic to see. And if that's early on with those love needs, then I learned to validate myself. I love, I learned to know my worth and that I wore the tutu and I didn't do anything with it. You know, I'm not going to become a grand ballerina or anything with it, but it's just how I want to wear it. But just because I'm me, I have worth. And so when that needs, because physiological needs are very important too. They are. If you don't have food, water, then you're in survival mode. And obviously everything else is kind of disrupted right then and there. But the love needs are so ingrained with the attachment because as people who had lots of money, they had the best schools, they had the best clothes, they had filet mignon for dinner, and they did not have their love needs met. And so having those physiological needs met was important and was good, and it was a foundation, but it did not, I, it did not insulate them from the harm that the lack of love need caused. Absolutely. And there could be, as Dr. Lynn was saying, the opposite extremes of overcompensating. Mm. So I worked once with a patient who was borderline or had borderline personality disorder, and she had seven children. Mm. And all of her children were diagnosed with some kind of disability. Mm. Whether they all had disabilities or not was very subjective, but mm. she made sure they got the diagnosis. She made them completely dependent on her. Mm. So she would often complain to me, you know, these kids can't do anything without me. He's 16, and he can't even microwave food for mm. himself. He doesn't know how to do it. Yeah. But... In the same token, she was enabling them to do these things and so wanted them to be dependent on her. Learned helplessness. Absolutely. And she told me that, well, my parents were the complete opposite. Mm. And I was 13 and drinking and drugging and smoking and having sex and I could do whatever I wanted. And they had no attachment to me whatsoever. Mm. They didn't care what I did. They didn't look out for me. So I tried to do the opposite and make sure I protect my children at all costs. Yeah. And that happens very commonly that... 
people recognize, hey, my upbringing was not healthy, so I'm just going to do the opposite. The problem is, and what I tell clients that they might not be catching, is what if your parents did the polar opposite of what their parents did? Then now you're reverting back to what generations ago were doing. Oh, that's trippy. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. Yeah, because we're not the first generation to think, wow, my parents might not have done great. Let me do the opposite of this. And yeah. so how many times of us doing opposite, we're doing something from the past generations without even knowing it. And that's why I tell people, don't shame yourself about your parenting because I don't think any of us really know what we're doing. No. We all are going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. It's just as long as you try to do the best you can and, you know, kind of learn from those mistakes of like, oh, that didn't work with this child. Let me not do it again. And maybe go to therapy if you recognize that you had unhealthy upbringing so that you can, with an outsider who can see the, you know, differentiate the trees from the forest, can go, well, have you noticed this and that? And how about we tweak this and that so that you can be the best parent as you can within, you know, your abilities because, right, we don't know what we don't know. And that desire or that tendency to go in extremes is not only common of people with personality disorders, mm -hmm. but people who grew up in dysfunctional families. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all do it. Yeah, yeah. That's, yes. That's why I say it's so normal. Absolutely. So, yeah, some of these things that we say definitely will apply to personality disorders, but they can apply to anybody. And it doesn't mean that you have BPD or MPD Absolutely. or any other personality disorder. Because like we said, the percentage of the population that can be diagnosed with it is very little, surprisingly little. Now there can be features because I grew up in that environment. Maybe my parents had full-fledged disorders, but I developed features of it because of the learned behaviors. Because sometimes it's not that we develop these copying skills, we're just copying them from somebody else. And we can unlearn what we learned. And so if we go into attachment theory and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, then we also need to go into the inner child. And I get it. Most people go, oh, okay, so kumbaya, let's hug some trees, you know, inner child, let's do all this stuff. Because they're like, what is that new age stuff about inner child? I'm a grown ass adult. I'm not a child. And I'm like, I agree, you're a grown ass adult. And this isn't kumbaya and hug the, the tree time. Is <laughs> that there's a part of you that when that hierarchy of need was not met psychologically and emotionally, you got stuck in that stage. And that stage is usually very early in childhood. I see a lot of people that when I do the inner child work with them, they see a three-year-old, a five-year-old. I've had people have 13 or 16-year-old, but usually teen years are the rarity. Usually early childhood, which, you know, the first five years, which in psychology, they always talk about the first five years are the most important developmentally, you know, for psychology and everything else. And so that inner child has to be addressed in therapy. And so I tell people therapy is like taking an onion and looking at the different layers. And each layer, we're really going into those different hierarchy of needs that weren't addressed and how it affected you psychologically. Now we don't sit there and do a book on, well, here's physiological needs and here's love needs. You know, for me, it would be that we're working on the BPD workbook that goes into the different dysfunctional thought processes that address these different needs. And then maybe we look at how your parent had a personality disorder and we process how that affected you. And then we go into self-love, which is obviously the love, safety, and esteem needs. And then we, we do the inner child exercise, which is where people meet their inner child they see where they were frozen, they take the child with them, and they begin to love the child because by loving that child, you are, in essence, loving yourself. 
And so from there that you begin to grow the child because you begin to be your own parent and you meet those needs that weren't met in a younger age so that as you begin to work on the shame, you're now growing with the child. You're listening to yourself. You're beginning to trust yourself. And therefore, you're meeting your own needs, which is the ultimate power. If you can meet your own needs, then people become a want, not a need. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. People become a want, not a need. Yeah. And that that's, that's so important. Because we want to want people. I want friends. I want a partner. You know, I want people because we are social animals. But if you need them, then they can control you. Wow, that's heavy. Mm-hmm. What attachment styles would you say that you mostly see within borderlines? Anxious avoidant, a lot of push-pull, a lot of I don't trust people, a lot of I keep them at a distance, but then I'm the duality within a person with BPD. I want people, I need people in my life desperately to validate my own existence, but at the same time, I'm absolutely fearful of people and don't want them near because they're going to hurt me, they're going to abandon me, and it's only a matter of time. I hate you, don't leave me. Yes. Wow. Okay. But actually, there is a book. Yes, uh, there is. Title. Yes, there is. Because it's so true. It's like the person in the way of them getting exactly what they want because they'll tell you, I want peace. I want healthy relationships. I want to be able to love people without being quote unquote needy. But it's them. It's, it's them. They're the ones keeping themselves locked in where they are. Not because they want to, but because they can't seem to stop themselves because of their attachment style. Mm-hmm. I'd say within narcissists, we usually see avoidant attachment style, and that's because the narcissist growing up had mm-hmm. to kind of figure out how to compensate for themselves, love themselves. I can take care of me. I wouldn't say love myself, but take care of me. I don't need anyone's attachment or approval whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And that may be because they had an overbearing parent who was very cold to them mm-hmm. or who's very conditional in their loving. Yeah. Or we have some who would do kind of the uh, the flip side of that, which is an anxious attachment. Mm-hmm. And it's, okay, the love is very conditional. Yeah. I'll get and give you a hug or I'll tell you I love you if you hit that home run. Yeah. So yeah. I'm always walking around on pins and needles and I'm afraid I'm going to be abandoned now as an adult because because yeah, <laughs> the love is conditional. It's yeah. very, very conditional. So we'll see that more so within the covert narcissist that it take that anxious type of attachment style. Yeah, yeah. But have you ever seen the fearful avoidant one where they are anxious and avoidant at the same time? Oh no, tell me. Well, I, yeah, I've seen it with people with borderline where they have both, mm-hmm. but that's the push pull. Right. So what about what about covert or are okay. they, can they be fearful? Absolutely, and this is more so the type that you'll see that'll be usually an abusive type, and that'll usually go more so towards the grandiose. So they'll mm-hmm. be, I'm gonna put you down, and I'm gonna make sure that you feel less than, so you don't abandon me, you don't leave me, okay. um, and then you try to leave me. It's like, wait. You're leaving me. You're just going to abandon me. You're leaving me like that after everything we've had, yeah. we've worked on together. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So then it's almost like they project their own fear onto the person and make them pay for it. Because if you made me fear losing you, I have to make you pay for it. Absolutely. This is your fault. Okay. See, if you if you hadn't, you know, made me mad by not washing the dishes tonight, we would never went through all of this. Huh. So it's you that keeps enraging me. I don't want to be a jerk to you. But you make me that way, right? You know, that's the thing about personality disorders. And again, I don't know all of them, but the ones I've worked with, particularly borderline, especially narcissists, Mm -hmm. what I find particularly, I guess, upsetting is that 
they don't take accountability for anything. No. No matter how much proof you have, they never. But they demand accountability from you. Absolutely. It's a double standard. It's a double standard. So Freud called that the observing ego. Mm. And because personality disorders tend to lack those, which is our ability to reflect, Mm. to take accountability, to look at ourselves and say, you know what, I kind of messed up there. Mm -hmm. Because they lack those, you will see that deflection constantly. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you know, you don't like it when I talk over top of you, but hey, you stepped on my foot the other day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, wait a minute. Let's stay at what's focused. And I believe what we modern day people call, what Freud called the observant ego is really insight. Absolutely. That's all it is. It's a fancy word for insight. They don't have insight, but the, the other thing is they don't want it. Mm. Don't want it because if they come to therapy, you kind of over to give them the insight, they'll Absolutely. maneuver away from it. Absolutely. So if you're able to get them through the door, remember desperation is the best motivator. Yep. You know what? My wife and kids are leaving me because they say I've been a jerk to them. Mm. Really, it's not the case though. They're they're the ones who've been tripping. But mm-hmm. they say I'm gonna, you know, if I don't go to therapy, they're gonna leave me. So here I am. And then you may have a little bit of weigh-ins, particularly with the narcissist, but you have to really catch them at their rock bottom if they're going to get better and they're going to stay motivated enough yeah. to get better. Yeah, and you have to get them before they reinflate like a puffer fish. Absolutely. After that, it's a done deal. But I think we've pretty much covered a good material with attachment and the needs and the inner child. I mean, of course, this is very surface there's so much more to all of these theories but we can always go into them in another episode sure enough we just want to thank you guys for listening in we hope you took something from it we will put a link or a list of the books that we mentioned within the show notes in case you want to check those out Mm -hmm. and please hit the subscribe button if you like what we talked about today or for something you want to learn more about please put it inside the comments we're always looking at them we're always looking to improve and get better and make sure we, you know, we're reaching you all yes alright alright thank you for tuning in take care take care